0: You're listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Welcome to episode four of Some Pulp. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and I'm joined, uh, as usually usual, by my sons, uh, Michael and Justin. Hello. How's it going? Today we're going to try something uh, a little different, a a retrospective on the 1950s that's really an investigation into the life and career of C.S. Lewis as it was unfolding in the 1950s. Part of the purpose is to investigate Uh, C.S. Lewis's apparently adverse attitudes toward film and uh, why it may or may not have interfered with an earlier uh, production of The Chronicles of Narnia and uh, what that tells us about Lewis and his popularity and uh, his uh, imagination as a writer and uh, his perhaps early and, and maybe softening later in his career uh, toward film as a medium. Most of the uh, listeners, I assume, uh, have heard of C.S. Lewis and, and uh, recognize the name. He's a, uh, uh, a, a strangely enduring um, influence on uh, modern fantasy and science fiction, certainly uh, the realm of Christian apologetics. But in the 1950s, Lewis was not a a particularly well-known or worldwide phenomenon of any kind his his books had sold well but uh, toward the end of his life he even had the opinion that he would be forgotten Um, Lewis is uh, famous uh, as well for his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien who of course has his own uh, enduring legacy through uh, his uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, as well as The Hobbit, and many, many other stories that uh, no doubt uh, Peter Jackson is already planning for uh, future cinema. Uh, but, but Lewis was uh, not a fan of uh, film, which is not necessarily a, uh, a negative, but uh, he had an unusually uh, strong aversion to what he saw happening in the, the film industry that we'll explore but just a few words about uh, about Lewis to uh, contextualize him. Uh, he's probably best known in the, in the current day for the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the uh, film industry has taken up, uh, uh, starting in, in 2005, both through Disney and later Fox, uh, his uh, stories of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and uh, The Voyage of the Don Treader, and uh, rumors uh, rise and fall that The Silver Chair, uh, which kind of completes the uh, Caspian trilogy uh, in the Chronicles, um, but uh, whether or not that film will ever be made, or they have a satisfactory script, or they have a director who uh, uh, can uh, envision this sort of, uh, of uh, Narnian imagination that perhaps... Uh, did not get uh, initially included in the uh, film series. Um, it remains to be seen. But uh, Lewis is well known for certain certain attitudes toward fantasy, uh, which he called the essence of mythopoeic imagination, uh, in which you envision and create a, an entire world and embody and... Uh, and uh, create uh, within that world its own logic with its own characters and dialogue and so forth. And certainly this is associated with Tolkien, his good and, and, and best friend in Oxford at the time, as they were both uh, working out their, uh, their future story writing together. And uh, as Lewis has famously been quoted, um, the, uh, the, the fairy tale, the fairy story, uh, the mythologies of uh, of the human race really uh, embody uh, these longings for eternity, these longings for the transcendent, and both he and Tolkien were trying to create in their fiction, their their fantasy, uh, these these new and, in, and invasive worldviews, so that those who uh, perhaps couldn't anymore uh, understand the grand narrative of Christianity, would be tempted uh, through these uh, sort of missionary myth-making works uh, uh, another look at uh, these uh, these realms. And so with Middle Earth, with Perilandra, uh, with uh, Till We Have Faces, uh, mentioning titles that uh, uh, Tolkien and, and Lewis would have uh, Talked about and uh, examined together, and uh, you know the fifties are a particularly uh, uh, startling uh, era for for Lewis after a nineteen thirties in which he wrote his magnum uh, 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 opus, uh, the Allegory of Love, and which is really an exploration of, of love as embodied in the world of courtly love and the uh, uh, the writer. Uh, the fairy queen sir edmund spencer and that 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 work really is is what launches lewis into his literary and his uh, teaching career and in you know indicates a a long and illustrious career in oxford which uh, he himself ends up kind of short-circuiting because of his interest in popular fiction popular genre and uh his uh, 40s are filled with kind of polemic, with uh, uh, debates and, uh, and argumentative works and apologetic works uh, defending Christianity. He's even on the BBC during the war years uh, producing provocative 15-minute uh, 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 rants about uh, a clue to the universe and a, and a clue to the meaning behind uh, what we consider law and order and and where that idea comes from. Uh, But as we drift out of the 40s, Lewis leaves the polemics behind and he starts to concentrate again on his true love, his first love, uh, which is fantasy. Uh, Lewis wanted to be a poet uh, as well, but uh, he's, he's writing poetry sporadically, but he's not really focused on that as much as the kinds of things that you find in Narnia. Which is part of his childhood, uh, and and the things he read then, the things he loved then, and he's 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 back on course, so to speak. And he also writes uh, an autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He writes a study of the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms, and he writes what he considered his masterpiece, uh, also in the in the mythological realm, called Till We Have Faces. And so the fifties are an era where with Lewis. Um, at rest, so to speak. And at rest, I don't mean not active, but because his activity is directed to restoring this sense of, of uh, imaginative release and he's able to return to these these kinds of uh, mythopoeic themes. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, 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 Mike or Justin has any comments about their in- initial thinking about about Lewis and, and what they associate him with, and maybe even with, uh, with these, uh, these films we can briefly touch on before we get into it a little bit deeper later. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, like many people, the, the first and strongest connection to Lewis for me is, is Narnia and Aslan and, and those stories. And, um, how powerful those stories are and and even returning to them how enjoyable they are even now and i, I think that's pretty common for a lot of people
2: yeah I'm, I'm the same way just with growing up in the edwards household so that was my same experience um kind of opened me up to the the world of fantasy storytelling and you know i remember we had some fantasy books on the on the shelves too uh, that weren't Lewis too. You know, a Grimm's fairy tale book and the like.
0: Um, yeah, I'm uh, you yeah, know I'm am a person who's who's loved Lewis uh, you know, most of his adult life, but I didn't actually know him or read anything of his when I was actually a, a 50s child or growing up in the early 60s, as we've been talking. Uh, so he he is a great find for me, a, a glorious. Uh, uh, you know uh, artistic uh, provocation to me as uh, as I came to know him and um, you know he loved his his apologetics first then uh, later on enjoying the space trilogy uh, I have a silent planet Paralandra, that hideous strength and and really just toward the end of of my uh, uh, early adulthood do I kind of discover Narnia always thinking you know i'll I'll get to that but it it, you know it's not as important as these other more serious works and so forth but you know i I, you know came to 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 write a couple of books about narnia and all due to my wife jones you know in you know intentional prodding to to read them because she knew i would i would love them but what's always fascinating me once i learned of it uh, was uh, Lewis's uh, skepticism about about film. And the the first film that I know uh, he would have had access to and, and, and uh, gone to see happened in 1933. It was a movie called Cavalcade. It was written by Noel Coward, the famous playwright and, and musical comedy uh, genius. And uh, I happened to watch a little bit of Cavalcade uh, last night to see why Lewis um, would have referred to it as uh, something um, completely emo. Now that's not his phrase. <laughs> that's what I would use t- today. Um, it, you know, it's one of the first uh, black and white uh, talkie movies. Uh, you know, early on, it actually won an Academy Award in 1933. And uh, it, you know, it's about uh, Britain in transition from the Boer War. And uh, uh, other other kinds of uh, militaristic adventures, and and the home life of uh, a aristocratic couple and their two house servants, and how their lives are changed by these uh, these events. It includes, the, I think, toward the end, the uh, sinking of the Titanic. And so it's it's one of these broad, almost uh, on on the scale of Forrest Gump, sorts of of panoramic history is only set in Britain and Lewis found it just overwrought and and uh, you know intentionally melodramatic and he says to his friend Arthur Greaves um you know he, he kind of fears for the 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 medium and and what it can and can't do and and uh, later on Lewis uh, has the opinion that there's really a kind of implied threat to uh imaginative literature because of the kind of medium that film is that it's kind of totalistic in its experience that it's not individualistic like the individual reader of a a book uh who is left to have the play of imagination to imagine what's happening uh as a as a story unfolds which is what lewis loved um and uh, his favorite um uh, one of his favorite, I should say, authors uh, is H. Rider Haggard, and the, the movie King Solomon's Mines comes out in the late uh, '30s, and uh, he sees uh, th- this film, and it's 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 one of the most engrossing and, and delightful stories to Lewis in this time, and he loves its mythopoeia, its world building, and its uh, its sense of uh, adventure. It's you know it's, it's an Indiana Jones type of, of adventure. Uh, in the book, but in the film, and there's two versions of it, but he saw the original King Solomon's Minds, there are some scenes that change that aren't exactly like the book. But Lewis's objection is not that it doesn't follow the book uh, as much as it reverses the sense of danger and makes it primary. And what Lewis says is, in the film, the uh, the director and the and the scriptwriters have to change the meaning because they don't trust the story and they not trusting the story they, they sort of flip the danger which is not being uh, in 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 the in the book it's the the danger of being closed in and and having the the, the walls close in and Lewis says nothing um, can uh, capture the the sense of uh, threat to one's well being and one's whole world as he sees these these mummies around him and things are closing in. And of course, this has been used a lot from the you know the garbage scene in the Star Wars <laughs> to uh, to other other kinds of claustrophobic sorts of effects. And and what they do in this film that Lewis objects to is th- they don't make it a claustrophobic, but he said it's almost agoraphobic. It's a sense of being exploded out. And he says those are two different things. And, and uh, uh, he, he feels that the, the machinery, the technology of film makes it uh, so audience-driven that the effects take over the story. And, of course, that's a, the sort of uh, criticism we can make about a lot of films. Um, but, but Lewis seems to shut down the possibilities of film And admittedly, admittedly, he's seeing an early stage of the film industry in the 30s and 40s. I don't know. We have no record of him, for for instance, seeing uh, A Wizard of Oz. We do know that he saw Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which he uh, alternately loved and hated because (laughs) uh, of the things that that, uh, Disney uh, tends to do with uh, his animation. Uh, But the result is that Lewis... uh, rejects all opportunities in the 50s to uh, to sort of turn Narnia into a commercial property that uh, you know might be even more widely seen and, and experienced and uh, uh, maybe this is a, a transition point where we can go back and forth over this this 50s era but uh, you know what what does happen in the eventual securing of the rights to Narnia and the way it has turned into a, a 21st century phenomenon from here from your point of view yes. as uh, viewers
1: well um I remember seeing line Witch in the Wardrobe when it came out and liking it okay but I think my, my dominant feeling about Narnia as turned into film is that it just was kind of just It wasn't like it was a disaster. It was just disappointing and kind of disappeared for me. Like I never even saw *Voyage of the Dawn Treader* um, because after *Prince Caspian*, I just I wasn't being awakened by this conception of um, *Narnia*. It wasn't this; it was just it was like a baby version of *Lord of the Rings* or something. Like, all right, here's the big battle with the sweeping CG scenes of, you know, hundreds of people running at each other yelling. And it just kind of, it was like this empty husk with all the right, you know, costuming and details on the outside. But um, it didn't seem to have that soul of the story coming through.
2: Definitely. I agree the same way of, of, you know, when you hear they're making films about Narnia, you you have images in your mind just because we all have our own ideas of what Narnia is and um and that's the challenge for any kind of book adaptation of course but um I yeah I didn't get a sense of of Narnia as another place I wanted to go and explore with these different characters it it was just filmed and written in such a way that like it's like oh yeah it's Narnia so that means there's fantasy stuff happening here like lord of the rings movies um and so i didn't get the the grand sense of you know no but this is narnia specifically you know and like even i like the things like lewis talks about how snow white and how they do animals and like you know relationships between characters with animals and like how do they get that right and i know that's such a part of narnia and kind of I don't know it, getting a sense of that community of like all of nature is is lending itself to this again the mythopia of of what he created and I just never got that sense I just got yeah, yeah hollywood doing lord of the rings light for kids
0: the, the other influence in this era of filmmaking which is just the the middle of, of you know 2000s um, is harry potter and and the prince caspian script is such a uh derivative of uh of some of the harry potter themes it's you know it's it's so blatant that it's disappointing just from the standpoint of well this isn't a bad story it's just not a narnian story yeah and
1: i mean i would want to call out in the line which in the wardrobe i do think that uh uh, Tumness was really well done, and I also think Tilda Swinton did a great job as the White Witch. And so there was, there was those little redeeming factors of those characterizations being pretty good, I think. But there, there was none of that for me to hang on to with Prince Caspian. It was just, the template of this kind of film it, it was no longer anything special that you could hold on
0: to that's that's telling i think because i think um there, there's two things going on with with lewis all the time and one is um that they are making a film at all it seems exciting it's like oh my my favorite author is is finally being recognized well First of all, that creates expectations that are unfair to Lewis because he's not part of the, uh, the, the filmmaking industry, doesn't understand, maybe doesn't even try to understand uh, the technology of it. His, his idea of authorship is, if not single and, and focused on the authorial intention of a single author. Uh, which you know Lewis is always playful with, because of course he he shared his work uh, with this group of friends and, and colleagues called the inklings, and so he was always having audience feedback, so it's not ever the case that it's um, Lewis going into a room and and thinking up these great thoughts and then releasing them to the world. he's sharing them, he's getting um, uh, all kinds of of critical commentary. Uh, much of it encouraging, but but you know there are there are changes he makes. But uh, with the audience at large, particularly the audience uh, of the uh, of the present day, if if a book or or a, uh, a movie or a documentary comes out about Lewis, people feel compelled to praise it and to and to think of it in you know uncritical ways. And I think that's that's been damaging in some ways because uh, the first Narnian movie. You know, it, it makes almost uh, uh, $700 million uh, worldwide. You know, just the box office in, in the United States was, was around uh, $400 million. And uh, as a result of that, it encourages the follow-up, the, the sequel writers, to, to think, well, maybe we can, we can make a movie about anything. We'll just call it Prince Caspian. And uh, you know, you know, a a generic fantasy film, just just like Shadowlands, which was the the biography that Richard Attenborough did of Lewis, with playing, uh, being played by uh, Anthony Hopkins, was sort of um, we'll call it Shadowlands, even if it doesn't really retain uh, or or you know put up on the silver screen much about the real Lewis and the real Joy Davidman in. You know, there's there's a movie apparently scheduled for next spring called Lewis and Tolkien, their friendship, which which could be an interesting, exciting movie. But in Shadowlands, Tolkien doesn't even appear, uh, and uh, you know they create all these composite characters. So, the, the Lewis community, if we can call it that, um, and it's ever more large and ever more international as the years go on, I, I think. Uh, they They have to demand more of the of the uh, producers and writers and, and so forth to, to, to get the story right, not because you know ultimate realism is what we want, I, as much as it is you know th- these are are framers of the imagination. they, they are the greatest uh, practitioners of the fairy tale uh, in the 20th century and if we want to have them live into the 21st century, uh, you know the, the Peter Jacksons and the Andrew Adamsons of the world need need at least to come up big on, on the enterprise. And imagine, I think my my overall problem with the Narnian movies is not that they they try too hard, they they reach too far. It's that they they settle for 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 too little. And uh, I, I I think Lewis and Tolkien would be. Disappointed if they if they you know could could have seen what's been done in their work, not because it isn't fun to see uh, Bilbo Baggins in the Battle of Five Armies. It's just that <laughs> these aren't works about armies. <clears throat> they aren't works about battles. They're works about the human heart, its aspirations, and in in some ways, you know, the, the desire to uh, uh, reach. Immortality with the imagination to reach out to it and and to find some way of of explaining to the human condition, <clears throat> you know, what what is this aspiration about? Why why do we need this transcendence? And uh, to reduce it then to battles uh, between human and uh, you know various yeah. other uh, orcs and and. Uh, uh, talking trees and so on, the, the, uh, yeah. so, on and so forth uh that's disappointing
1: and just aesthetically i have a hard time telling the difference between the battle of the five armies and helms deep other than like one was at night and one was in daylight but like <laughs> all the same narrative turns happen you know the the magical heroic rescue by a third army or, you know, fifth army or whatever number of armies um, <laughs> that comes in on the side, like, yes, we survived till dawn and our help arrived. And um, it, it it's kind of sad to feel like the, the Hobbit movies became a cliche of themselves, but that's what it was, except for when Martin Freeman was on the screen. Then there was some kind of that, that heart of those films. It was covered up way too much and, you know, I've heard rumors on Reddit that someone has edited a version that basically makes it about Bilbo as it should be, and I'm excited to see that version of the film.
0: There's a, a, a quote I want to share from, from Lewis. It's, it's from his uh, great essay called On Stories, which I think ought to be, um, you know, mandatory reading for uh, maybe a screenwriting course someday. Um, Here he says, Nothing can be more disastrous than the view that the cinema can and should replace popular written fiction. The elements which it excludes are precisely those which give the untrained mind its only access to the imaginative world. There is death in camera. And uh, that's one of the strongest statements that, that Lewis makes anywhere about any genre. And I think it's unfortunate because I think the the, the tools of of the imagination that, that Lewis wants to have access to, in fact, he, he does have access to in, in the written medium, um, seem to be excluded in his mind from from the camera, and the, and the, the sort of democratic process of filmmaking that involves you know such a a, a large entourage of, of people all working in the same direction under under the director. Uh, or maybe the studio, and uh, it, it's unclear to me who Lewis was uh, uh, targeting with with that that statement. But I think it's probably seeing some of his most cherished writers. Another one is John Buchan and and his uh, the Thirty Nine Steps. You know, seeing those made into films that, that just don't have that sense. Of uh, adventure that that Lewis felt as a young boy and you know later an adolescent uh, reader, but clearly he feels an implied threat, uh, and whether he thought that cinema would erase uh, books and you know erase storytelling and so forth, um, you know I, I I don't know exactly you know, where where he fell upon uh, upon that uh, sentiment except that. Um, he does believe that the cinema does something different to and for the imagination. And his fear was that it would replace the individual viewer or the individual reader, uh, replace his or her exercise of the imagination uh, with what is on the screen. And uh, I don't know if you think that's a, a valid concern uh, or exaggerated concern, but uh, you know, similar things are, are are said by critics other than C.S. Lewis uh, about film going.
2: Yeah, I, I can agree with the sentiment of feeling that the participation of the imagination is is robbed or compromised in some way because film watching is passive. You're not a participant with you know getting to imagine what all of this is is looking like and, and how it would play out in your head um, and if if you want to mourn that I can certainly understand and I I mourn that myself too when I often see adaptations of books that I like and then I go oh there it goes I can't picture Harry Potter myself anymore right um, but then on the other hand I just as someone who could just enjoy that, I guess enjoy that passive experience and and enjoy the imagination of others because that's what they had come up with and um to appreciate it and and marvel at what they're able to do with it as story makers, not just tellers. They actually have to make it for you too. And that's that's kinda where I'm able to enjoy both worlds. And I, I think there's a
1: sense in which really good filmmakers can still play with that sense of imagination. There, There is a negative space to storytelling because when you use, when you work in film, it's about as much of what you're not showing than what you're showing. And um, there can still be these important gaps and chosen um, spaces in your story that you don't tell. <laughs> and those things can be just as full of imagination, I would argue.
0: Sure. And in the 1950s there are also an era in which the the comic book wars are being fought, uh, where uh, you know very austere uh, looking uh, public officials are, are coming to microphones and decrying the uh, the comic book as as uh, something that's going to cause juvenile delinquency and so forth. <laughs> and of course, that's that's not something that that Lewis would have. Uh, Imagined or or approved of, and you know, because he's a great uh, aficionado of science fiction, and uh, you know, even you know, uh, I'm not sure he would have been aware of the the Marvel versus DC transition in the early 60s. But you know, uh, you know Marvel is creating the Norse gods with Thor and and Asgard, and you know, of course, that's those th- those characters in, in that. Uh, uh, mythology is of great appeal to both Tolkien and Lewis. The, the Norse myths, compared to the, the Greco-Roman myths, that are, are certainly more popular in the public imagination in the early 60s, with you know movies about uh, you know the, the, the Greek gods and and the, the mortal man and the, who rises up like Hercules or or, or someone to challenge their authority. Those are all part of the building blocks in their minds as they create these, uh, these sort of new myths. Um, but it, the 50s is kind of a gray period for imagination that uh, we've already talked about in, in, uh, in, in a past episode that people like Rod Serling and others are, are challenging in, in creating new ways of, of depicting stories you know, using uh, television, even though it's black and white. Uh, and so I, I think uh, you know, Lewis and, and Tolkien do represent uh, a disruption of, of what uh, is uh, allowed to be part of the education of the masses you know, and, and, and allowed to be part of, of children and adolescents' uh, reading habits. Uh, although it's it's a slow evolution you know you know by the early uh, 60s you know Tolkien is is a, a worldwide phenomenon and of his own and uh, and you know both he and Lewis have multiple lives you know they they kind of rise and fall era by era and and you know I guess you could think of this as the the Tolkien era with the the, the filmmaking of Peter Jackson but there was a time when uh, you know Lewis might have had the uh, uh, attention of of moviegoers with better Narnian movies, uh, and uh, even the possibility of, of filming his space trilogy, which I think is eminently cinematic, and I think would appeal to uh, uh, you know moviegoers today under you know the hands of uh, of, of someone uh, you know like the the maker of Interstellar, and uh, you know. Uh, Christopher Nolan and and so forth. Uh, interesting. I'll I'll just uh, mention this that uh, the uh, great uh, character actor uh, uh, Ronald Coleman uh, apparently had mentioned to his daughter once in the in the forties uh, he he wanted to play Ransom in in the the sort of space trilogy uh, if it if it got filmed and, and looked into optioning that. Property, quote unquote, uh, which is, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, not often something that happened to an Oxford Don that some some uh, famous actor, uh, you know, then operating uh, under the auspices of a of a film studio in Britain would have, you know, wanted to use his property because that's not the sort of thing Oxford Dons wrote and would have any <laughs> any reason to consider an, an option. But uh, I, I wish that. Had been made. I, I would have liked to have seen how they would have uh, have done this uh, in the '40s. It might have ended up looking like Flash Gordon, but uh, in that original serial, which is you know low production values, but uh, that that would have been been fun to see. Uh, you know, back back to Narnia. Um, there have been uh, previous to the uh, the films uh, produced by uh, Disney and Fox. Uh, other versions of uh, of narnia uh, in uh, 79 um the 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 craft food company sponsored uh, about a 90 minute animated version of the lion the witch in the wardrobe that was uh, directed by uh, bill melendez who's famous for for doing the charlie brown uh, uh, holiday uh, episodes so you know, you're a good man charlie brown uh, yeah, it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown. Here, here he was tapped to, to do this, uh, to uh, to mixed reviews, I think. But uh, you know, Narnia has had some other incarnations. Eventually, the BBC does the first four uh, of the Narnian uh, tales, uh, and uh, later it was uh, shown in America under the uh, PBS series WonderWorks. And I think that may be a place to to land here. It's the sort of absence of wonder that I think uh, plagues uh, the the attempted treatment of uh, of the Lewis work uh, of, of this of this era. And I wonder myself if you think there's an absence of wonder in those uh, those movies and you know what would have made them more uh, exciting and appealing to the person who really does have an, uh, an affection for what Lewis is trying to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my complaints about the the modern Narnia films are kind of the same as I feel about like the first Harry Potter movie where it's very captures the book like in terms of plot, it like follows it almost exactly. but it's just kind of mechanical. And I would I would rather see a director or a screenwriter take liberties with the details of a plot if they thought they were capturing the spirit or imagination better. And so I think like you know I think we we all mostly agree here that like the Harry Potter films got a lot better starting with the third one, and I think they're they're pretty good after that point. But the the first couple were were kind of unimaginative and. I think that's the sense I got with the Narnia films.
2: I agree. I, I, I like what you mentioned about the idea of wonder and how that's like such a, it's an intangible thing. And how do you like put more wonder in the movie, you know, <laughs> but um, it's a quote Andrew Stanton has in this Ted talk he gave a couple years ago about story. Um, he's the, you know, he wrote some Toy Story movies and ended up doing, um which one did interest into? um you know finding nemo and um ultimately did john carter um was his last foray um but his his number one point is always you know you know storytelling is all these grand magnificent things that you get to do with things but when it comes down to it he he remembers back to as a child the first thing of his experience was that he remembered stories cause they made him wonder and, you know, gave him this sense of awe and like, wow, you know? Um, and, and I, it certainly never felt that in any of the Narnia movies. And, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't know how you inject that into your, your scripts or your, you know, but it's, it's a heart thing. I don't know. It's a soul thing. We've talked about like the spirit of it, but, I don't know. Maybe there's just some mechanical thing that happens in adaptations, especially that you're so keenly aware of, like, did they get it or not? And I don't know, studio meddling or what?
0: Yeah. Um, Adamson was was quoted uh, widely when the movie first came out saying he wanted to make the film that matched his his nine-year-old imagination. (laughs) And, and I think that that, that was troublesome or prob- problematic for this reason. Um, you you can't recreate that nine year old imagination just by imagining what the the film would be like. You, you've you, your aspiration has to be to create a wonder filled movie that appeals to your audience's imagination, whether they're nine year olds or not. I, I think I think trying to reproduce an experience. Uh, from from childhood is is something that Lewis actually has some experience with, and and talks a bit about in uh, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, where he talks about reading Beatrix Potter, and uh, and, and uh, the 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 other works of his childhood from uh, uh, I I'm dro- dropping her her name uh, uh, um, uh, Edith Nesbit uh, and. Uh, her, his his love of talking animals and so forth. Uh, you can't quite reproduce that, and you wouldn't want to as you, as you've grown to an adult. But you want to remember and treasure that experience, and and what you do is look for more of them, not the same kind of thing. And I think that's the, that's the the derivative nature of uh, of of these movies in in the attempt to recreate something. That is in someone else's mind is is always a a dangerous premise for writing a story you know making a movie, writing a song, whatever it is um, you you've you've got to point to you've got to show, not tell, which is you know a, a familiar saying to uh, writers and for all I know film school uh, students, but Lewis says it very explicitly that that the the writer's job is to show and let the connections if there are any at all. Come from the, the the reading of that work, the experience of the work, uh, and, it, and you 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 put too much on the uh, uh, scaffolding and the uh, the uh, technology, so to speak. Uh, if if you try to make it do what you want it to, instead of letting it happen organically in the in the making of it.
1: Yeah, I'm reminded of the quote. I think it's Lewis that talks about like instead of telling us it was horrible, make us feel horrible after we read about it. Or, um, you know, something isn't terrifying. You you can't just use the word terrifying and call your job done. Like that's very lazy writing. And I, just as a recent film example, I watched the second Mad Max film recently and i think it's a pretty good movie and i i've never seen the first one and i'm planning on seeing the remake when it comes out but one thing that just drove me nuts in the movie was the music was relentlessly over the top telling you how to feel at every single moment and it was just kind of non-stop dun, 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 dun. like as intense as the moment when you're waiting for the death star to explode in star wars but the whole movie is that way. It's not like just the climactic bomb is about to blow up scene. And I, I, it was just irritating, and it made me think a lot less of the film, even though I think it's a pretty great movie.
0: Well, that, that's really akin to the kind of statement that Lewis has made about this movie, Cavalcade, in that he is always being prompted by the, the set pieces of the movie, so to speak, to uh, mourn losses... To um, you know, have have a sort of a, a philosophical attitude about the, the the waning of Britain's powers and you know its colonial powers and so to speak, and uh, and I think that that's that's all sort of depicted in the movie. You know, the the the, the Great British Empire is now falling apart, and uh, I, I don't think Lewis liked that. So. Pointed a sentiment of the filmmaker of, of making that, that happen. I, I think he is uh, transfixed by the power of the darkened room with the, with the flickering lights in front of you uh, and the, the ability to not just imitate life but seemingly to, to create life or, or to, you know, your you're watching is really not as passive as you think. But at that point you know Lewis isn't interesting in, in creating a, a grammar of film. Uh, he's just interested in, in how it affects uh, the imagination and uh, what what he hopes the imagination to be uh, uh, used for in, in each human life and I think he's he's like most of us dreamers in that he'd hoped that awaking the imagination means a more humane, a more just you know a more uh, uh, alive, Kind of existence that's you know primed to receive the riches of you know, you know whether it's uh, faith in God or or a just society or uh, you know he he just he just believes a lot in the imagination as as a human faculty that needs to be uh, provoked and and challenged.
1: I'm reminded. So earlier you mentioned. Um the 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 common man kind of being like i would have done it differently i could do better at film and uh just if if lewis could have lived long enough to see something like annie hall where you know woody allen can pull in marshall McLuhan into the movie real quick to argue with someone in line about his understanding of the film or just these little fantasy moments that are just so playful um but you know another example i think of with the film being over suggestive and and kind of crushing your imagination instead of inviting you to expand it is you know this might seem like i'm I'm picking on something too small but the tv series parenthood drives me crazy (laughs) and it's because every single scene that the music comes in and tells you how to feel before anyone said anything or looked in a certain way and it's just I don't know. It's so over-suggestive. It's never ambiguous how you should feel about anything in that series. And you never get a chance to figure it out for yourself. It's, oh, they're sad now. Oh, this is happy. Oh, this is heartwarming. And you just don't... There's no room for you. And I have the same criticism with some music that, you know... I don't know. Maybe there's a way to talk about it where I can... Like, there's songs that are really sad, but um there, there's also music that it's just like hey feel sad and you're just like that, that that's not how this works buddy
0: yeah and then i think uh, both lewis and in talking uh as as two commentators and observers would would uh, would be aggrieved at that as, as well um i, I wanted to uh, before we we close to, to shift to the the possibility of uh, uh a movie or approach to uh, a movie that Lewis uh, might have enjoyed, and and that is the uh, movie Serenity by uh, Joss Whedon, and uh, you know, based upon the uh, short uh, TV series but beloved uh, Firefly. And uh, uh, I think one of the things that that uh, Lewis would like in general is its its meshing of several. Uh, Themes uh, and you know, one being the, the space opera, but also uh, because he, uh, I, I think he he references the western and he particularly uh, references um, uh, he, he references the the Indian the uh, Native American in, in culture and uh, in in Serenity you've got uh, the, the the freedom fighters. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the malcontent, uh, you know, Captain Mal Reynolds representing this, uh, you know, daring do set in the future where he's resisting along with his shipmates the, uh, the desire, uh, thematically in, in the movie of the world powers who are in, sort of in charge of the universe these days, uh, who, who want to create a world without sin. That, that's, that's a very heady phrase. Um, they wanted to create a world without sin. And what they got were the reavers, the, 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 the cannibals, uh, who through various scientific experiments and so forth are, are driven to create the new man, which is really the old man, which is you know, a very inhumane, unhuman uh, creature. And, and uh, you know, uh, Nathan Fillion playing that role has some really terrific lines that are very short and very direct. You know, uh, and, you know my favorite in there is, uh, uh, you, know, you know, we, we were going to misbehave. Yeah, and uh, I
1: aim to misbehave.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, re- the result is a rebellion not against uh righteousness but against sin in the sense that, of that they wanted it because they, they want to you know reduce humankind to a certain type who is passive and quiet and stays in line and so forth and of course that's nothing that uh, you know mal is interested in and in, in his crew because they're all individuals and they're you know they're uh, representative of different cultures and, and, and attitudes. There's even a you know a Christian on board, which is you know an oddity uh, in in science fiction in in uh, uh, the the shepherd. And uh, I, I think Lewis would have enjoyed the ironies and it would have seen in the uh, <clears throat> Serenity crowd critics of uh, what what he calls The Conditioners, uh, you know, written about both in The Abolition of Man, uh, uh, a uh, philosophical work that he produced, very short but pungent work about public education and creating men slash women without chest, meaning uh, who don't know how to keep head and heart uh, in some sort of equilibrium because both are necessary and, and important. And uh, and then his his third in the trilogy of space uh, novels, uh, That Hideous Strength, in which the the NICE, the uh, National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, attempts to, uh, again, uh, pacify, homogenize humanity uh, so that the, uh, the few can enjoy the uh, riches of, of the Earth and the other planets. Where everyone else are in uh, subjugation and uh, servanthood, and uh, you know, you know, Lewis believes ultimately, uh, as I think probably Josh Whedon does, that uh, that's not possible. Uh, you may try to eradicate sin or quote bad behavior, but that's not who we are as creatures. And I, I think he would just have, have loved the unfolding of that, um, and maybe even the the technology of the, of the filmmaking that that gives you spaceships. Because when Lewis creates space travel, he doesn't really get into the technology of it because he doesn't really care how Ransom gets to the next planet. Uh, the the, uh, the The science part of it is not of interest to him, but the results of scientific reasoning and conclusion and and what what they say about humanity is that does uh, interest him and of course uh, uh, stories like Blade Runner from Philip K. Dick um, and uh, the the, the stories uh, that are contained in Interstellar the relationships in that movie I think would greatly appeal to him and I think he would see uh, or or perhaps coin a different phrase about there's death in the cinema, but there's also life in the in the cinema.
1: I agree. He should have just lived longer to see these better movies, <laughs> <laughs> or if he could have caught Metropolis or something.
0: Right. Yeah. You you, you can kind of see um, both both his uh, demural at where filmmaking was at the at at the time but uh, also uh, it would have been nice for him to be able to have uh, conceived of the promise and the, uh, the, uh, the wonder that's, that is possible in, a, in the cinematic experience. Well, we, uh, we thank our uh, listeners, and uh, we'll allow our, uh, our uh, robot voice to uh, take over now and uh, explain how, how you can support... Uh, Am I a robot now? <laughs> I just watched the Outer Limits uh, episode that has Leonard Nimoy in it. And at the end of every Outer Limits episode, there was not the robot voice, but the uh, the control voice will now return you to your regular <laughs> programming. Uh, right. So. so we'll we'll see you in two weeks.
1: Yeah. And so you can check out these show notes at sunriserobot.net slash some pulp slash four. Um, to see links to some of the various films we referenced and some of the, the resources uh, discussed. And, uh, also, if you'd like to help us out at the network, uh, there's a couple things you can do. You can head to sunriserobot.net slash support and, uh, check out our Patreon campaign where, uh, you know, running a podcast network has some infrastructure costs and, um, anything you would like to toss our way helps immensely. And we're incredibly thankful. Um, another thing you can do is go to our iTunes links and, leave reviews for us and that will also help us reach a bigger audience so thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time